Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 137 today. We're in a series uh, where we're walking through Psalms. We're calling it Songs for Life. Uh, it's a recurring uh, series here at BCC. Uh, and uh, we bring it back up pretty regularly because the Psalms, there's 150 of them kind of divided into five books. Chapters one and two stand as a type of heading over them all. And uh, uh, they, they just, they contain all of the things that we need to live the life that God has called us to live. How about this? Maybe this. It addresses almost all of the various things that we will encounter in our own hearts. There's so much of the Bible that is didactic. This means this, this means this, do this, do this, do this. The Psalms, uh, the poetry there, the lyrical compositions, uh, they address in a beautiful way the things that we experience in life uh, and point us to truth and how to handle that. So, I'm going to go ahead and prepare you for what's about to happen real quick. It's going to be a bumpy takeoff. Like, uh, the takeoff today is going to be a little rough. Um, yeah, but we're going we're gonna to get to where we need to go. So um, you'll see what I mean. I'm, I'm going to read it. Psalm 137 says this. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. For there, our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I don't set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall be he who repays you with what you've done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. This is your classic baby bashing sermon. Um, I, what, do you, what do you do with this, right? Like, like you read this and you're like, what? What? I mean, you could spend most of your life in church and never encounter that baby bashing verse. That's insane. I, uh, what do you even do? And there's been a lot of people that have thought about what we do. Uh, C.S. Lewis famously said, yeah, I don't like it. I'm not for it. We shouldn't pray those things. Like, see, he's just like, nah, I'm out. Uh, on this, mark it down, uh, he and I disagree. I, I think that we actually need to know these. I don't know that they play a primary uh, every week kind of role in our life, but I, I think it's here, and we have to know what to do with it. It's, it these are called, these, this line anyway, um, because here's the deal. It's actually, it's actually more common than you think. As a matter of fact, I, I don't know that you could, it's going to be difficult for you to find many pages in the Psalms where someone's not praying for God to destroy their enemy. It's pretty common. You get to the New Testament even, there's, like, the people call for the destruction of their enemies. Uh, and I, it's kind of almost embarrassing for us. Uh, these Psalms are called uh, imprecatory is the fancy word if you're, if you're collecting $5 words. Imprecatory is your word. Uh, and it means uh, any 
call, wish, desire, prayer for God to act in judgment on an enemy. That's what it is. It's an imprecatory psalm. And this isn't an imprecatory psalm. It's probably not categorized. But this, this last part is definitely that, this wishing and calling for the destruction of your enemies. Um, so here's the thing, though. How do we square that with Jesus' words in Matthew 5, where he says this, uh, you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How do we square the baby bashing psalm with Jesus saying, you need to pray for your enemies? Pray for them, love them when, when you're persecuted. Pray for them. Like, how do we make sense of this? And we need to um, because uh, the Bible actually says, 2 Timothy 3, uh, Paul writing to Timothy says that every piece of scripture is valuable. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So if we believe that this is true, that the Bible is actually useful, what do we do with this thing that sits very uncomfortable with us? I think that we have a tendency probably to just skip these things. Like we have some kind of vague idea that like, well, uh, there's a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, so we're just gonna kind of pretend like that's not there and move on. Uh, we can do that. My young theologians, uh, uh, Gibson, Ellie, uh, Major, some of the other people that are here, some of the younger ones. I, this is a, I'm talking directly to you guys. This is about how to read the Bible. Today's sermon is really more a class, uh, less less sermon, more class, uh, on how to read scripture. And here's the two things that I want you to know, uh, that you just need to know. One is this, uh, the best interpreter of scripture is scripture. If we pull a single verse and just read it and then try to decide what we want, what it means on our own, we're going to be in bad shape. We actually need to draw all of Scripture. It's important that we know all of Scripture if we're going to understand what this verse means. Uh, we, we need to understand it in light of everything that's been written. So we come to something difficult like this and we go, what do we do? We step back and we know what we know. We step back and think about what we know about God. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. So we're going to look at Scripture to see how we understand this. The second thing I want you to know is this. The Bible actually says that God has given us great teachers, that one of the gifts to the church is great teachers. So we rely on the teachings of the church for a lot of years to help us understand this. We're standing on the shoulders. I'm not the first person to preach about this. We're standing on the shoulders of men and women who have taught about this for a very, 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 very long time. So we are going to do that. It's, this is about how to read the Bible. We can't just pull passages that we want, and we can't just go dismiss them as old. So here's the deal. Let's start with this. I, one of the things that's so shocking about this sermon is uh, the difference between how it begins and how it ends. I mean, it ends horribly, but very violent, right? But it begins very tender, right? It's this... This, the situation that's happening here, we can actually tie this to a time. It's the time when... Um, God had sent, using the Babylonians, he'd sent his people, this nation that he built, the Israelites, the Hebrews, uh, that he'd given them this land. The story goes back all the way to this guy named Abraham. And he'd given them this piece of land. And he kept telling them, if you don't stop doing violence, if you don't stop committing injustices, if you don't stop, I'm gonna take you out of the land like I took the people out that were there before you. If you do not quit committing evil and violence and all of these things. If you do not quit turning for me, I'm going to send you away. And he uses the Babylonians eventually to do that. In the year 587, 
We know this year, 587, Babylon comes in, takes over Jerusalem, conquers the capital of that nation, what's left of that nation, conquers the capital, and demolishes Jerusalem, temple and everything. And they take the best of them, and they haul the people in the land, they leave some there, they scatter some, and they take most of the people, a lot of the people, they take them back to Babylon to set up. Like if you were an expert in a thing, we have lots of stories, Daniel, uh, Esther, these are stories of Babylonian exile. It's a big thing in the Bible. If you're thinking of like big stories, it's Abraham, the nation nation being formed when they're down in uh, Egypt, and then God leading them out in Exodus, and and then becoming a nation under, uh, under the judges, and then you have the kings, and, and, and one of the big things that you have in the story, you have the Babylonian conquest. And then the Babylon, uh, Babylon, uh, the, the Babylon Empire is taken over by the Persians, the Persians by the Romans, and now we're in the New Testament. This is the history. So this is a historical thing that happened. They have been captured by the, ba- 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 by the Babylonians. Their city, Jerusalem, has been destroyed. It's been wiped out. And they refer to the hill that Jerusalem sits on, right? Jerusalem, one of the, things, the great things about Jerusalem, this city where David was and all the kings sat, uh, was that it was on a hill. And so it's hard to attack. So they called that hill Zion. And except for this, it wasn't just that, you see goes, uh, the, the song goes back and forth between Jerusalem and Zion. It wasn't that Zion was just like a place. It also kind of represented something else. It, it was the idea that this is where God is. So when you say Jerusalem, it's a city. When you say Zion, you're talking about this is where God dwells. Uh, it was the notion that God is there in his temple, that he resides there and he lives there. So when they talk about Zion, it's the idea of God's people living with him. It symbolizes his divine presence. And there are a bunch of psalms that are called songs of Zion. And this psalm starts out tenderly and just like just heartbreaking. Uh, the people in captivity by the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. They're in captivity, they've been taken away, and they're sitting down, they're used to the mountains and the streams and the valleys of, of, of Israel, of Jerusalem, and now they are by the waterways and canals that have been carved out by Babylon, this huge, massive nation that's conquered them, and they're sitting down by the rivers, and they're weeping, thinking about what it was like, the stories they've heard of, of dwelling in God's presence in his city. It says that we, on the willows here, there's this very, this, this beautiful thing, is we, we took our our harps, and we hung them up because we're not going to even sing songs of Zion anymore because the captors, the people who have captured them are taunting them. The songs of Zion were songs of how impregnable, impregnable Jerusalem was, like it would never be defeated, how powerful God was. So they're in this town, and their, their captors are taunting them. We go, hey, why don't you sing us one of those songs about how powerful your God is and how Jerusalem will never be taken over. Sing us one of those songs. And they're mocking them in a time when you're already wondering what's happening in the world, with all God's promises about Jerusalem, how, how can it be that we're in this situation? So they're heartbroken, they're away from their home, they're being tormented and mocked, saying, sing us one of those songs of Zion. And so the, art, the, uh, the author of this psalm says, uh, how can I sing these songs of joy when I'm trapped in a foreign land? And it says this, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I don't think about Jerusalem, I'd rather not sing any other songs. I'm not going to play the harp for anything else. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. I will not sing songs if I forget Jerusalem. May it be my highest joy. It's this commitment to remembering the faith even in times of persecution and dislocation. 
I'll not sing other songs. If it gets to the point where I don't remember Jerusalem anymore, let me forget how to sing songs altogether. No joy. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Then it goes sideways. Right? And then it says this. It says, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites. So here's the deal. First, I'll talk about the Edomites. Edom was a nation, uh, descendants of this guy named Esau. If you uh, follow the story, uh, Esau and Jacob, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, uh, and they're descendants. It's two different nations. So Israel and Edom, they kind of are often mentioned as uh, metaphorically as brothers, right? Because they come, the lines are separated, Esau and Jacob, right? Back in the biblical story. So he says, the Edomites, you're like our brothers, and you were there, and there's... there's Bible talks about what happened when Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem. It says the Edomites came out and cheered them on. Yeah, tear down the walls. Tear down it to tear it to the ground. We don't want to see anything left of them and what they stand for. It's the destruction of all, everything. So he, says, he first calls out the Edomites and says, God, do something about the Edomites who cheered us on, lay it, who said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. God, do something about this. And then eight, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. There were lots of prophecies that, yes, you're going to be sent, even before they went into captivity. It says, you're going to go into captivity with Babylon, but I'm going to destroy Babylon too. So this is, God, do what you promised to do. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. they praying for retribution. God, do to them what they did to us. The Bible and actually many other places outside of scripture point to the brutality of war at this time, particularly the Babylonians were particularly violent. There's actually several places in the Bible where they talk about what, what Babylon did. So in, in Nahum, one of the prophets says that, described it this way, she became an exile, she went into captivity, her infants, infants were dashed into pieces at the head of every street, for her honored men lots were cast and all great men were bound in chains. Isaiah prophesying says this, their infants will be dashed into pieces before their eyes, their houses will be plundered, their wives ravished. Talking about what the Babylonians would do. Second Kings 8 says this, Hesiel said, why does my Lord weep? And he says, the king says this, I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses and you will kill their young men with sword, dash into pieces their little ones and rip and open their pregnant women. This is what Babylon was like. It's what they did. Uh, the idea that we have today, uh, which is a distinctly Christian idea, that human life has value because of God, because human life has value, that wasn't, that, that's a pretty modern idea that, that flows out of Christianity. If you were in the, a foreign town, those people over there that have nothing to do with you, they were just, they weren't really even human. They were just people to be conquered if you could. And this is the world that they inhabited. And he says, this was done to us. God, do that to them in this prayer. It's this prayer for retribution. So, even though this is the world that they lived in, this is where we're going to get into, this is the kind of, that's, that's the historical setting of why this was written. But, <laughs> when a... Someone at the time who would hear this prayer, it would have been a, a corporate kind of song probably. When they heard this prayer, did they think, yeah, you know what? We as a nation, we're pro-baby bashing. Like that's, did, is, that, is that how they thought? Like you should go out and do that? Hey, hey man, where are you going today? Going baby bashing. Blessed are you. 
Like is that the situation? No, that wasn't how they would have heard this. It's not how they would have, they wouldn't have read this as, as this is something that I need to go engage in. And, and here is why I can say that. Here's why I can say that with confidence. Because there are images in the Bible that they were steeped in. There are images in scripture that they were just so steeped in that, 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 that when they read this, they would have heard, there would have been constant echoes. As a matter of fact, this word that's used here is only used one other place in the entire Psalter. It's in Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is about the Son of God. Psalm 2, one of the headings of the Psalm says this. Why do the nations rage, the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst the, their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, that he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. The ends of the earth will be your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. The idea is that the king, the Davidic king, the thing the kids are learning about today, the promise that David would always have a ruler on the throne, that the Davidic king, he was going to be the one... The, the, the son of God in some way uh, described God placing him there to rule authority. He's going to be the one that goes and does this. It's the authority of this one, this king, to somehow do this. It's not up to me to go and do it. Second thing that they would have been steeped in, second image that's important to understand this, is the idea of the snake. Do you guys remember back in Genesis 3? If you read the, the beginning, it's amazing. There's a story uh, about the rebellion uh, and how Adam and Eve, the first humans, are tricked into, uh, are tricked into uh, rebelling against God. And so when they, when they do rebel against God, uh, they're tricked by this superior spiritual being, uh, this serpent. And this is what God says to the serpent. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise your, his heel. There's this notion from the very beginning, as soon as the fall happens, that the serpent tricks them, that one day the serpent, this representation of evil, this, this evil person force idea that, that one day God is going to crush this serpent with a descendant of this woman. Fascinating, right? Fascinating. So cool. I'm trying not to preach a whole nother sermon right here because it's just amazing. So, so this promise from the very beginning, these two that just sinned, I'm going to crush you with one of their descendants. What? So that's what's happening, this idea of the serpent. And it, it keeps coming up. As a matter of fact, you get into Exodus and the Pharaoh that, that, that captures them and, and, and begins to kill the, the babies and, and the Pharaoh that, that decides to enslave the, the uh, Israelites that are in Egypt. You know what he's, how he's described? Crafty. He's described in the same way that the snake is described in Genesis as crafty. And then Moses is sent to do what? He's, he's sent with his son, and the, the first sign he's given is to throw his staff on the ground, and it becomes what? It becomes a snake, and Moses picks it up by the tail. He's the one who will handle the serpent. The Pharaoh is cast, if you know Genesis, and this idea of the evil, the serpent, the force, this one serpent who tricked Adam and Eve, the force behind these evil, evil nations and men. 
It goes on all the way through. As a matter of fact, you get to Revelation, and in Revelation 20, you actually have the destruction of the snake. It says one through three. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit, shut it up, sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended, and after that, he must be released for a little while. Verse 10. The devil who had been deceived them was thrown down into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beasts and the false prophets were, and there they were tormented day and night forever. This is an image of the time when that serpent is defeated. The Bible uses this image of the forces behind, spiritual forces behind much of the evil that happens in the world. So when they hear this dashing, when they hear this destroying, they're thinking of that. Not only that, Babylon, even by this time, and eventually it's going to become even more clear, Babylon's just not this one nation who did this thing. They actually become the symbol for all of the evil in the world. They they become a symbol that represents like all of the bad stuff. As a matter of fact, you get to Revelation right before what I read, and and they're the bad guys. Uh, 18, I'm just going to read to you a little bit here. Uh, After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. Uh, This is this image of what we see in heaven in the future that John has. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become the dwelling place for demons, a haunt for unclean spirits, a haunt for unclean birds, unclean and detestable beasts. The nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her immorality, sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living it's this image of the power structures of the world babylon just becomes to represent all of this evil and destruction that happens in the world that that it's this power that becomes the great god and babylon becomes to represent that so that is all in play not that they had revelation But the idea that that Babylon is not just this one nation, but represents the evil in the world that is entrenched in systems in the world, Uh, that is how they would have read this psalm. They would have read that in light of this. They would have read this as praying to God to cut off the line of the snake, cut off the evil done to God's people forever so they can worship him. That's how they would have read it. Because they knew about generational evil. The, the Babylon just generation after generation after generation. Pharaoh, Pharaoh after Pharaoh after Pharaoh after Pharaoh. Rejects God, rejects God, rejects God. Does violence, does violence, does violence, does violence. This psalm is a prayer. God, cut off the line of the snake. Send your king to crush the head of this snake so that evil doesn't reign anymore. That's how they would have read this psalm. Now, Here's the thing. Uh, while they're in exile, the, their faith is under threat and they're pressing to never forget their highest joy, uh, that God will bring salvation. And here's the thing. When God brings salvation, it, it necessarily means bringing judgment to those who not, do not accept his salvation, right? Those who do evil. So here's the thing, though. So this is how they would have read it in the Old Testament, understanding Babylon as this one needed to be destroyed, the, this line of evil. How would we have read it in... How do we read it now on this side of Christ? How do we know things? We know things now, this side of Jesus coming, the revelation of how God is working through Christ. We know things now that that maybe they didn't know at the time. It doesn't mean that they were wrong. It just means we have a clearer picture. Luke 24, we're a Luke 24 church. That's what I like to say. Luke 24 is Jesus walking down the road. He's risen from the dead. He's been crucified. He's died. He's risen from the dead. He's walking down the road uh, to Emmaus. He shows up. He's walking next to to a couple guys. And he's like, what's up, guys? And they're like, how, what do you mean, what's up? Like, haven't you heard about Jesus? He's amazing. He was this dude all 
all, he did all this stuff and they crucified him and killed him. And now we just heard that somebody took his body and they claimed that he's, he's uh, resurrected. And Jesus says to them, they don't recognize him. He said, opens the scripture and he begins to explain to them how everything in all of the Old Testament, what they would have just called the scriptures, all of the scriptures pointed to him. Moses pointed to him. David pointed to him. Abraham pointed to him. Jonah pointed to him. The prophets pointed to him. The kings pointed to him. All of these things pointed to him. So how does this then point us to Christ? How do we now look at this and say, how do we make much of Christ? How do we even think about this, this side of the cross? And then here's the thing. In Jesus, we see in, in this psalm, there's this appeal to God as king to come and bring justice. And we know this side of the cross, that's who Jesus is. The great king who has come, who has come, who will one day return, and he will return and bring justice. He will bring that. God cares about justice. He cares about the wrongs that have been done and cares about righting them. We know that God cares about justice, justice and that Jesus will come and be the one who brings this justice on the earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's what that's about. God coming and bringing justice. We also know this. In the New Testament, in this psalm, they pray for the, the enemy is, that God brings his wrath on the enemy, that he brings judgment on the enemy. And we know that Jesus was the one that was treated like the enemy. He was the one that was outside. He is the one who was innocent and was not, did not do the betraying, but he begins to be treated. He's rejected and pushed outside and he's crucified as if he was the enemy. Not only is he the king, but he's the enemy. Not only that, he's the innocent dashed against the rock. So you and I would never have to be. That is who he is. We look back at the psalm and we see as we, as we walk through it that we have been made exiles, that we, because we're in Christ, that this is not our home. That, 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 one of the things about Babylon that was interesting, there's an interesting verse. My dad used to bring it up all the time. It said it bothered him. I love it so much. And one of the verses that bothered him is that God says to his people while they are in captivity in Babylon, he says to them, build houses, have families, Raise them up, plant gardens. You're going to be here a while. Be there, but never forget that you're not a part of Babylon. Don't take up the habits of the things around you. Now in Christ, we can look at this and say, because of what Christ did, we have been made into this new family, that, that this is not our home, that we, we shouldn't be super comfortable with the ideas and, the, and absorb the ideas and the practices and the habits that the world absorbs, that we are in some way separate. Now, what do we do in the meantime? We... we build houses, we have families, we plant gardens because we're here, but we do not adopt the practices of this world. We make Zion, this promise of God coming and making things new, we set our thoughts and our thinking there and our hope there. When persecution comes, we do not lose hope but have faith. We know that this side of Christ when wicked people in power begin destroying their faith and persecuting believers maliciously, the righteous must strengthen their resolve to keep their hope alive and must submit their desires for vengeance to the Lord in prayer. It is not ours to go and make, have vengeance. What do we do? First thing is this, we trust. Here's what you trust in. You trust that God takes the wrongs done to you seriously. 
I think we look at this and think, look at this brutality. It's easy to read this brutality uh, from the suburbs and say, man, you know, what an what ancient, you know, thank goodness we've outgrown this way. Uh, of being in the world. Uh, if you think that, you probably haven't watched much news. Uh, there is brutality and evil in the world. There's more slavery now than there ever has been. Isn't that crazy? Like, across the world, uh, tr- people being trafficked by other humans, it's, un- 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 it happen- it's happening today in this city. It's un real what people will do to one another. We live in a world where people still do brutal things and here's what I want you to know. God takes that very seriously. He takes it, so we trust that the wrongs done to us, the wrongs done to you, your God, the God of all creation cares deeply about those hurts. He cares deeply and he takes evil in the world seriously. He hates evil and sin and his promise is one day he will come and wipe it out. Get to Revelation, the promise of Revelation and it says there's gonna be a day when there are no more tears. There is none more of evil but it's not our responsibility. The son of God will bring vengeance when he brings salvation for those who won't repent, for those who won't turn. So what do we do? We trust, but we also pray for our enemy. That doesn't go away. You can do both of those things. You can read this psalm and say, God, come bring justice. Wipe out the line of evil in this world and at the same time pray for your enemy. Those things don't contradict each other. God, help them turn, deal with evil are things that Christians are both called to pray. So you pray for your enemy. You pray for their good. And it's a very, very hard thing to do. I think it's a nice thing. Like, oh yeah, you should pray for your enemies. And it's a nice idea. Have you tried to do it? It's really hard. Like just, it's hard just to, not just, not enemies. It's hard to pray for people who hurt my feelings. Like I had my feelings hurt in the last couple of years. I don't know about you guys, but like my feelings got hurt pretty bad a couple of times. And I, I didn't want to pray for them. I just wanted to win arguments with them and explain to them why they were dum-dums. That's what I wanted. And the Bible says that I had not, not enemies, not just enemies, but people hurt my feelings. I had to pray for their good in this life. It's real hard. You have to actually believe that Jesus loves you to do that probably. So we pray for our enemies and we focus, we aim our anger in the right place. Listen, uh, being angry is part of being human. The Bible talks about it. There's a way to be anger, angry the right way. We tend to take our anger and focus it on a person. The scriptures take anger and they focus it at, at the evil done in the world and the forces behind it. We focus our anger on the injustice in the world and the hurt being done and not on taking vengeance on an individual, which is what my tendency is. You hurt my feelings and I want to bow up against you, not against the systems that created the situation, not against the evil behind it, not against, I don't want to pray for you, I want to injure you back in like kind. That's not what we're called to do. We pray for their good. We absorb the pain and the suffering because we know that we're deeply loved by the Father. Jesus tells us that, right? We learned that on the cross, at the cross. And then we aim our anger at the right place. There's evil in the world and it's right to be angry about it. Don't go too comfortable here. Don't adopt the customs and the habits, the things that the world values. Sometimes there's overlap in the things that Christians value. Um, But uh, be real careful of the reason why. And we have to always focus on the fact that our God says he's returning and he's bringing all of this hurt to an end. So pray for the Lord's return. 
That's what we do. Come, Lord Jesus, come. I think that when we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come, we think, like, come and save us. But do you realize when we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come, and we long for him to save us, that means he's going to bring about justice. To save us, what does he have to do? He has to deal with evil. Pray for him to come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And then also, I think, by the way, it's also true that we're called to stand in the way of evil. We're called, when we encounter evil, when we encounter forces that corrupt, we're called to stand in the way of that. And the place that that starts is in our own hearts. In our own hearts, we have these things in our heart, in our hearts that want to hurt and injure and wound to break and damage relationships that influence the environment that we are in, the the relationship environment we are in. We deal first with the hurt and the anger and the wounds in our own heart by applying the truth of the gospel every single day. I've been wounded by people. I apply the gospel to that. I've been angry and failed. I apply the gospel to that. Every single day applying to the gospel to the broken and hurt and the evil we find first in our heart. It's tempting to read this and go, yeah, God, one day he's gonna get those out there. But if he comes and deals with the evil, that includes me. There's places in my heart still struggle with these things. So he comes and deals with that. It's first in our heart and we are grateful for it because of what Christ has done. That will not happen to us. That because of what happened to Christ, that punishment will not fall on us. It's already fallen on him. And we stand in the way of evil this way. We care for the sojourner, the widow, the orphan. Those are key words in scripture that mean the most vulnerable among us. Those who are most vulnerable, we stand in the way as best we can to protect and guard them against the harm that comes from the systems and the hurt of this world, from the evil, from the snake that stands behind the evil forces in this world. We stand in the way the best we can. We're called to do that. We don't seek vengeance. We stand and we pray, we care for, we love, we invite in, we inconvenience ourselves to be in their lives. That is what we are called to do. The way that we stand in the force way of evil is by pouring out love. Loving those who are most vulnerable. Loving those who are hurt and wounded. Forgiving one another. This is a powerful force in the world that God is using to crush the snake. Even now, pushing back while we wait for him to come and finish it. This is what we're called to do. So I believe this. I believe this psalm has a place in our life to help us focus our anger where it needs to be at the evil in this world, to remind us that there is real evil in this world. And it has a place in our hearts to call, to pray this thing and go, God, deal with evil in me. Crush the lines of evil in the world so that they, that they no longer can cause damage to the ones that you love. Come, Lord Jesus, come and accomplish this now. One of the things that I love about the Bible so much is that it is very realistic about the world that you and I live in. Where people are deeply wounded, where we can cry out for justice and for God to come and deal with this broken, broken world in which we live. And that we can cry out that with great hope that we have been saved and that he will one day come and bring about that kingdom. This is what world we live in. This are the promises that God has given us that he is going to come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father, do not tarry. Come quickly. Bring your justice. As we live here in this world, it's, uh, it's not our home. 
that you're going to come and you're going to remake new, that you're going to wipe away tears, you're going to wipe away hurts, that you're going to take all of the hurts and harms done to us, all the evils that have been afflicted on your children, on on the poor, on the outsider, you're going to take all those hurts and someday, one day, you will make those hurts great glories. You will not only wipe away all the tears, uh, one day sad things, hard things will come untrue because your eternity will work backwards. It will invade time and space so that we may have life. No life, eternal life with you. We long for this day. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We thank you for the sacrifice that we have in Christ. The blood spilled, the body broken, the innocent dashed, that we know that we might not be. We thank you for Jesus. We worship him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.